Joyful Courage Parenting Podcast, Episode 89. to the Joyful Courage community. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am your podcast hostess. I am a positive discipline trainer and coach. I'm a former school teacher and the mother of two children. Just in case you don't know about me, maybe it's your first time listening to the show, in which case, welcome Yay for new listeners. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you picked this show to be the one to listen to. This week, I am so honored to have Noha Alshugayati on my show. She is a um, marriage and family therapist. She is also a positive discipline trainer. She strongly believes in the power of an encouraging therapeutic relationship to affect change and works alongside her clients to uncover their hidden sources of strength and resiliency in their journey to achieving their goals. She works with families and couples and individuals. And the reason that I invited her um, onto today's show is because I feel like I have a platform here, right? I have a platform here. I've got you all showing up each week to listen in on the conversations. And um, there's some really important conversations that need to be had right now in our in our communities, um, and one of which is the fact that a lot of us don't know a lot about the Muslim culture. And Noha actually wrote a book recently, co-authored a book called Positive Parenting in the Muslim Home, and I thought it would be really interesting for her to come on and share about her work and share about why she was called to write this book, but also to give us listeners a glimpse into the Muslim tradition. And it turns out families that practice is you know the Islamic faith are not all that different from the rest of us. And so Noha spends time sharing her amazing wisdom around um, working with parents, how to encourage them to um, to practice mutual respect with their children and others. She talks about her own practice of inner peace and how she has come to study and learn about inner peace and bringing that into the relationships that she has. She also at the very end tells us, you know, gives us some tips about what to do to make those first steps towards being in relationship perhaps with people in the community that you might not think you have a lot in common with. And so don't always approach. Um, I, again, I'm honored. She is my friend. She is my colleague. And I'm just so grateful that I get to introduce you to Noha. Hello, Noha. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Casey. Glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you. This has been a long time coming. Please yeah. share a little bit about your journey of doing what you do. Um, okay, I like to think of myself as a um, citizen of the world who had gone through maybe about 20 different countries in her journey. Mm. Um, and um, 
I am right now currently a, um, a licensed marriage and family therapist who practices in uh, Newport, California, uh, Newport Beach, California, and um, a mother, a wife. Uh, I have four children. And uh, in 2016, we've been blessed with uh, three grandchildren. Uh, so this is, you know, my kind of like personal side. Um, my maybe spiritual, my professional journey has been, you know, varied and wide and, you know, jumped from one thing to another to where I am right now as a therapist and a positive discipline trainer. Right. Yes. And are you a lead trainer? No. No. You're like me. You're a trainer. Mm-hmm. Yay. Yes. Well, yes. and that's how we met years ago at yeah. um, just for listeners, background information every year. The Positive Discipline Association invites trainers and educators from around the world to come together in learning and community. And we met years ago at that conference. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was struck immediately, Noha, by your quiet kindness and just this gentle strength that you embody. And you are one of the first Muslim women that I've ever been in relationship with. And I, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if I'm a little embarrassed about that or it just kind of is a reflection of where I've lived and Mm -hmm. my life experiences. Um, And every time I get to hear you speak about your experiences or talk about your faith, I am captivated by the depth of love um, that shows up there. And we had that great car ride last summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that. And that I is just, awesome. <laughs> I'm, I'm so grateful for your willingness and openness um, around having conversations with people that are pretty, clu- I mean, me, I feel pretty clueless around um, the Muslim faith and the Islamic mm-hmm. faith. And so my invitation to you on the podcast was, you know, to, to share both, um, talking about parenting because you have positive discipline in your toolbox and Mm -hmm. also a conversation where my listeners and myself can learn some new things about parenting within the Muslim tradition. And you just wrote a book that was, is positive parenting in the Muslim home. So can you paint a picture of what, of what it looks like? I mean, I can't, it can't be drastically different from <laughs> parenting no. in the Aurority home. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. So now we're talking about, you know, what, how does parenting look in the Muslim tradition mainly, right? Yeah, I'm not yeah. talking about the books now. So um, when you, yeah, I, when I was, you know, thinking about that, um, I mean, really, honestly, it's really the same, truly, like any other parenting journey in all other ethnic groups and religious traditions. Mm-hmm. There is good. And there's definitely bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would like to emphasize that within the Muslim community at large, uh, it, uh, there are so many different practices in parenting. They're very heterogeneous, not and, and partly because when we talk about Muslims, we're talking about like 80 plus ethnic and racial groups. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's really we're not talking about one ethnic group here. Mm-hmm. And um, also, like in any other religious uh, tradition, the practice of faith itself is different. Uh, depends on, you know, um, what the family chooses to follow and the interpretations of the scholars they, you know, kind of like listen to. So, so we do, uh, you know, we're similar, mm-hmm. like any other, you know, family out there. 
Um, there isn't anything specifically unique about the Muslim parenting practices. And I, I see in all faith traditions um, that emphasis on the family role and the family as a unit for the community. So that's not even unique to the Muslim, you know, mm-hmm. experience. Um, so, yeah, I would say we're the same. Yeah. So what called to you? You So you co-authored, you know, this book for um, mm-hmm. positive parenting in the Muslim home. Can you share a bit about your why? Why you, this, you know, a book specifically written for Muslim families called to you? Sure. Um, so basically, when you look at different um, resources about parenting within the Muslim community, they fall into one of two categories. The first one is a traditional category. And in this one, you have either speakers or authors who are talking about what is the Islam, Islamic framework when it comes to parenting and what does Islam um, say, you know, needs to happen in the parenting process. So these, um, this category is, is about a lot of shoulds. You should do this, you should do that, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. And also, uh, they share a lot of stories from the early uh, history of Islam, mm-hmm. uh, which are beautiful and inspiring, but then uh, somehow there is a lack of connection with, you know, to what's happening now, nowadays, to the reality, to our 21st century reality. So mm-hmm. that's one category of resources. The right. second one, second one is basically um, psychologists or educators by training um, who are offering their ideas on parenting and they're not connecting it to the Islamic tradition per se. Mm-hmm. And usually um, they do translations of what resources are already out there. So Munira and I figured that there is a gap between the two categories. And we hoped that our book would be a bridge between um, what does the Islamic tradition say and also the reality of parenting in the 21st century. Like I tell my 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 parents all the time, like, you know, yes, Islamic tradition has a lot of uh, um, valuable insights on what to do. But for example, does Islam tell you what to do when your toddler is having a tantrum? And, then, and then there's nothing specific about that in the Quran. No, no. Imagine, you know, I mean, Quran doesn't tell us, you know, uh, and for, for your listeners who don't know what Quran is, it's basically our holy book. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like the Bible for the Christians mm-hmm. and the Torah for the Jews. So anyway, so they look at me like, you know, dumbfounded. Like I say, that's exactly the point. I mean, so we need to know how are you going to deal with your toddler who's having a tantrum or your teenager mm-hmm. who's uh, maybe addicted to drugs. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you open the Quran, you're not going to find the answers there. So we need to help you with that. Right. And so I love that. I love yeah. that, you know, that, that alignment of the two, two things that I know you are passionate about. And what a gift for the parents that you work with to get to, to be inspired. I mean, I just think anytime you're learning about parenting in a way that really lands in your core values Mm -hmm. is such a gift. Um, What are some of the ways that the principles of positive discipline align with the teachings of Islam? So that's what we did in the beginning of the book. We kind of focused in the beginning of the book at talking about that alignment Mm -hmm. because we knew um, that 
practicing Muslims will need a buy-in, just mm-hmm. like in positive sure. discipline, how we do a buy-in yeah. in the beginning. So <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. So we try to um, really, uh, um, you know, impress upon our readers that we're not talking about a foreign philosophy when we're talking about positive discipline. Mm-hmm. I love how one of my, the early parents who took one of my first uh, parenting workshops and, uh, you know, at that time, um, I didn't really at that time do anything related to the Islamic tradition in the workshop. I just mm-hmm. did purely PD, right? Mm-hmm. So then I had one parent who kind of like raised his hand and asked at the end, at the end, and he's like, you know, Nuha, this is beautiful and wonderful, but you're not telling us what Islam says. And I agreed with him, and I, I wasn't. And then another parent told him, but you know what she's doing? What she's doing is basically showing us how to apply Islam practically Mm -hmm. in our family. And I love that from the parent. He got it. He got the message. He got that I really don't need to be preaching about what Islam says in order for us to really be doing positive discipline. However, I understood also the need of some of the parents for that reassurance and that validation. So... Anyway, so we have a chapter in the book where we talk about the alignment. And so basically, um, we share some of the principles of positive discipline. And then we bring examples from uh, from the Islamic tradition showing how they are actually aligning. So I'm going to run through them very quickly. Yeah, uh, yeah, please. Thank you. you. Yeah. So building social interest, uh, fostering belonging and contribution understanding the belief behind the behavior, encouragement, uh, mutual respect, kindness and firmness at the same time, short-term versus long-term. And the last one we shared was focus on solutions. Um, So uh, one of the uh, PD uh, trainers, uh, Joy from England, Mm -hmm. she she loved the story in the book about um, how does Islam promote mutual respect. Would you like me to share that? Please do. Thank you. Yeah. So this is a story from the early time of uh, Islam, and it's um, basically narrated that the Prophet um, was sitting with a group of his companions, and the one sitting to his right was actually a young boy. Uh, we don't know exactly how old he is, but he, he might have been, he, he's not a teenager yet, he's just a young boy. So then we're told that um, they were to drink something. So the cup, the I mean, the prophet was the first one to drink. And he's holding the cup and he's about to pass the cup around the circle so people can drink. And in, in the Islamic tradition, you, you're, supposed to, you're supposed to begin with the person to your right. However, also in that circle, there were people who were elders and also part of the tradition is respecting elders. Mm -hmm. So what the Prophet beautifully did, which was amazing, is he actually looked at the young boy sitting to his right and he asked him permission Mm. if he can give the cup to the elders first before he can take it. And then the boy responds by, oh, no, I will not lose the opportunity of drinking after you. And, and the prophet. So the prophet doesn't scold. He doesn't say no. You should respect the elders, and they should go first. None of that stuff. And he mm-hmm. gives them the he gives them the cup, and you know, just passes around the circle. So um, many Muslims.
This podcast is sponsored by Factor. Are you old enough to remember TV dinners? They came in those tin trays and each part of the meal had its own little compartment. I remember eating those and watching Happy Days, followed by Three's Company, maybe a little Laverne and Shirley. I am that old. Well, the situation has been totally upgraded by Factor. Factor makes delicious, ready-to-eat meals. And unlike those quick meals of the past, every Meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including meals that are calorie smart, protein plus, and keto if that's your thing. Also, there's more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. In my last order, we got red chicken chili, tamale bowls, and Italian sausage pizza casserole, as well as other delicious meals that my family loved. Plus, there's breakfast and smoothies and all sorts of other add-ons to make life simpler while also keeping it healthy. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. They've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Right now, head to factormeals.com slash joyful50 and use code joyful50 to get 50% off. That's code joyful50 at factormeals.com slash joyful50 to get 50% off. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. You know, would be surprised to even know, I mean, there are many Muslims who actually were surprised when they hear the story, this story, and Mm -hmm. they go like, oh, really? We didn't know that this happened. I say, yes. And also what's important is what do you do in your own family? If that was the particular situation, you would definitely cede the right to the elders over the right of the children. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, you know, I... You know, I invite, you know, my parents usually to see, look how the prophet respected Mm -hmm. the right of the child and he didn't scold him. And I say that's our invitation and positive discipline to continue on that path. I think that 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 mutual respect piece is so powerful. And I think that mutual respect has been skewed a bit in popular culture to be, you know, when you respect me, I will respect you. Yes. And I love that we get to offer something different, which is I'm going to respect the needs of the person in front of me. I'm going to respect the fact that they are another human being while also respecting myself in the situation. 
Yes, I, I this is a concept um, that I also even feel within the positive discipline communities, especially the earlier you know, people who adopt adopt positive discipline in the beginning, they struggle with. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I, I noticed that many people sometimes in the beginning, they tend to go into the, I'm going to respect the right of the child. And they forget about respecting their own rights as individuals, as parents or teachers or what have you, mm -hmm. or the situation even. So yeah. so sometimes they we fall into this permissive, which is a misunderstanding of positive discipline. Uh, so, so you're right. Uh, truly understanding that mutual respect does not mean uh, letting go mm -hmm. of your rights as a parent teacher or even the need of the situation. And that's actually extremely important, too, at the same time. Right. And I, I have an example that I use of that, which is um, toddlers and young kids in the library. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, what do little kids, they love to pull the books off the shelves. They love to run around. They're mm -hmm. noisy. Um, and and I it's interesting to observe the different ways that parents respond to that. And one is like spending an hour telling them to be quiet mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. getting really frustrated, you know, quote, frustrated that they're not, quote, listening and then being angry and, you know, perhaps strong arming them out with a big lecture Mm -hmm. Or the third option, which is, wow, you really want to run around right now. And <laughs> yes. we're at the library. So let's go to the park. <laughs> like, yes. And, yeah. you know, and I think that's such an obvious example of what it, yeah. how it can look, you know, because often they're developmentally, you know, they're acting their developmental age and then it doesn't line up with the expectations that we have or the situation calls for. And so then we move into... Mm -hmm. a place right. of frustration or anger or embarrassment. And that's, that's never helpful, is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So something that shows up in many religions and religious texts is the expectation that children will be obedient, that word obedient to their parents. What do you think about this and how do you talk about it in your book and in your classes? This is this, you know, like how we were talking earlier about deep questions. This is such a deep question, Casey. I was like, wow, I love this question. I was very surprised by it. And but at the same time, I love it. I'm very anyway, deep. So, Noha, come on. Yes, 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 I know. <laughs> oh, my God. So basically, um, and, and I think, you know, my response to this highlights the different practices within even, you know, the Muslim community. So basically, I grew up in my family where my parents didn't have this expectation of us to be just obedient. Um, my fam In my family, and, and I dedicate the book to them because I truly believe they raised us with positive discipline even before, you know, I, I, I believe it was born. In my, in my family, the uh, there was discussion. There were discussions. And uh, as we were growing older, we were given autonomy that was appropriate to our age, where we would make decisions and we were expected to be responsible. So this idea of just, you know, having obeying whatever my parents say was really not something I grew up with. So, so I was surprised and shocked as I, you know, as I moved into the world to actually come across people who actually believed in this idea. 
uh, of like they have to blindly, you know, just obey their parents. Then, and, and it comes up in my office all the time, of course. But the thing is, when it came to writing the book, and I knew it's an issue because I see it in the off, uh, in my office, I figured, you know, I have to do some research on this so I can write about it authentically in the book. Mm-hmm. So I did my research, um, and I came across opinions of scholars, uh, Muslim scholars, that say, yes, you know, children should obey, you know, their, ch- their parents. But I also came across opinions that qualified or, or had conditions on what does it mean to obey, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's not like completely blind obedience. Um, so I wrote a piece, an essay in the book, um, and I, entitled A Blind Bear. And bear is a word in Arabic that basically describes what uh, the relationship with, uh, between children and parents should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, you know, expanding on that concept and I, and, and I state in the essay too, that in the Quranic verses, when you read them, and there are seven specific verses in the Quran that talk about the relationship between children and parents. And these seven verses, they use, they don't use the word obedience. They actually use another word, which is, um, ihsan and, and ihsan in Arabic means doing something with excellence. So I posit to the parents in my essay that what is required of you, uh, what is required of children towards their parents is to treat their parents with respect, with reverence, with dignity, but it's not blind obedience, that children have the right to actually have their own different varied opinion from their parents, but respect needs to be the overarching uh, uh, overarching, you know, controller of the relationship on both ends, mm-hmm. basically. So, um, for some, when for some parents, when they hear this, this from me, they kind of like are shocked, and some of them, you know, of course, sit and argue with me. And uh, so, it's 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 a process. Um, it's a process, but this is where I stand on this issue of obedience. And do you talk about, uh, and I'm guessing you do, but the idea that, because I wrote that down, do, you know, doing things with excellence. And, and in my mind, what showed up was doing the best you can with the tools you have. 100%. So excellence, 100%. excellence at age three or four is going to look different than excellence at eight or nine or 17 or 18 because yeah. of the tools yes. and the practice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And and also uh, to add another layer to that, I have like, you know, adults who come to me and talk to me about, who, you know, being abused by their parents. And then and then they tell me, well, you know, and then, you know, we have scholars who tell us you have to, you know, love and respect and revere your parents. And I'm like, you know, how are you going to love? I mean, love is not something you can just force yourself to mm-hmm love some, how are you going to love someone who abused you? Right. Just, just because they were your parents. Yeah. I mean, the only duty you have towards them is to treat them with respect. And again, the excellence as best as you can, Mm -hmm. depending on the situation. Mm -hmm. So somebody who had parents who abused, um, are not going to be asked to treat their parents the same way. uh, Someone who had parents who were wonderful, they nurtured and loved and support. 
Um, so yes, uh, I'm so glad you picked on that, you know, subtle nuance of what does it mean to treat with excellence? Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And you know what else just showed up for me, which is a little side mm-hmm. journey that we're going to take right now, you know, and talking because, uh, you know, I work with a lot of parents too, that have history around, mm-hmm. um, the ways that they were raised and, um, painful memories. And I recently have been able to participate in some transformational leadership workshops. And something that really struck me with the facilitators is when they'd listen to the, you know, the stories of the participants and the invitation to, um, to recognize when they were, you know, as adults, when we hang on to the hurt, Mm -hmm. we're really, allowing our parents to continue to abuse us. 100%. And so what it looks, you know, and I think it's probably different for everyone around what it looks like to let go of that. And to have, you know, it's a part of your story. Yes, but it doesn't have to continue to be your current present story. Absolutely. 100%. We need to move from being basically um, passive and reactive Mm -hmm. Uh, and victims, if you will, to proactive and active participant in, and what do we want to do with our life? So we're going to acknowledge what happened to us. We're not going to deny it. We're not going to suppress it. We're not going to say, oh, it didn't happen. No, it happened. Mm -hmm. It happened. And most probably it actually uh, changed or impacted the the way the person is right now, because Mm -hmm. that pain is transformational. Mm -hmm. So instead of using that pain as a, uh, as a downer, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, then using that pain as a source of empowerment to actually move forward and, and be a source of contribution to others who, you know, touch, touch the lives of other people. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So do you, what do you find are what, what do you find non-Muslims are the most surprised to to learn about Muslim families. And I, and I have to say out loud, it, it even makes me feel uncomfortable to say like non-Muslims versus okay. Muslims. Cause I don't yeah. want to, I am not here to create, you know, to add to the us and them conversation that's already exists. Um, mm-hmm. so any time in this conversation, know how, where you want to say gently, Hey Casey, perhaps you should word it like this. I am all for that. So just putting that out there too. Thank you. What do you Mm -hmm. find that people are the most surprised to learn about Muslim families? Um, I think maybe, maybe, and and I'm not sure exactly, um, you know, I've come. Yeah. So I think maybe the surprise is that women in, in the family are not actually oppressed by their husbands and fathers and their families. And they're not meek because somehow there is this stereotype, type that we Muslim women are just, you know, oppressed and they don't have a voice. Mm-hmm. And I'm not denying that there are women, Muslim women who are oppressed, but we have also, you know, women oppressed in the U.S. too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's it's just part of the human experience. I'm All I'm positing is that it's not specific to Islam. It's not specific to the Muslim community. I also want to add that when that oppression is present in, in, you know, in, in the Muslim family, it's usually based on some kind of pra- culture or practice. 
and it's not a pervasive uh, practice across all you know Muslim communities um, and that's a reality that wherever you are there is this interwining of the culture of the group mm-hmm. and also you know the practice of the faith itself so I would say this is one of the things that maybe surprises people maybe yeah, yeah. and what do you wish that we understood better about Muslims? Um, you know, I'm really, maybe just going to be very blunt now and say, Do you it. know, <laughs> well, I just because of the climate we're living in, yeah. we, re- we really, really are not terrorists. Mm-hmm. Really, really. And I mean, I know there are terrorists who are, you know, doing some horrendous and horrible things in the name of Islam. Mm-hmm. But these constitute like maybe point zero 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 something one of you know right. of the muslim population so um the rest of us are um just like any other human group uh, we have beautiful people mm-hmm. we have mean people we have uh, nice people we have uh, rude people just your average joe and and janet yeah yeah, and I th- thank you for saying that. You know, I mean, I look at the the people in the world that are that terrorize others, and actually, there's a wide variety of people mm-hmm. that show up in that category. Yes, <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, the the you know the other layer to this is right uh, right now um, globally, the Muslim community is in a weak position. Like they don't have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. So it's really very easy then for, for them to be labeled as the global enemy. Mm -hmm. Uh, it just seems like when you read history at any given era in history, there is a need somehow for the collective community to have an enemy. They always, and they choose a group. Mm -hmm. Uh, The U.S. has its own share of different enemies through different eras, right? Right. Um, So now, unfortunately, it's the Muslims, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it is what it is. Would you you say that that's one of the biggest challenges right now for Muslim families here in the States is just bumping up against that? 100%. Yeah. 100%. It's... uh, it's twofold. So on one end, it's, uh, you know, how do we protect our children from Islamophobia? And the other one is how do we actually build that American Muslim identity so they can be proud of mm-hmm. being Muslims and being American at the same time? And how are we going to navigate that? That's, yeah. Yeah, so, it's tough. Yeah. What kinds of conversations are you having, are, are parents having with their kids around those issues, would you say? It, it varies. Mm-hmm. And I think it reflects where the parents themselves are, right? Mm-hmm. So you have parents who are already secure in themselves and mm-hmm. in their identity. And those parents usually transmit that security and that, you know, um, empowerment. Then you have parents who, for whatever reason, they are not feeling insecure. They, 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 they feel insecure, sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those parents are usually the ones who are so scared, so worried, they see themselves as victims and they are crying out loud that they need help and they need people to support them. And uh, and so that fear and that insecurity, unfortunately, is unconsciously also transmitted to the uh, to the children. Yeah. 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 And I think that happens no matter your religious faith. Right. I mean, yeah. I know I worked with kids 
when I was a teacher and, you know, the kids in the classroom that were real quick to blame everybody else and not take accountability tended to have parents that were telling the same story about their life. Mm, yeah. Yes. The human condition again. Right. Exactly. So tell me the name of your counseling office. Um, my uh, practice yeah, is called Sakina Counseling. Sakina Counseling. Tell yeah. me what Sakina means. Sakina is a beautiful Arabic word, and actually it's also in the Hebrew language, which is fascinating because we share the same roots, both mm-hmm. Semitic uh, languages. Anyway, it means um, it means peace. It mm-hmm. means tranquility. It means serenity. Um, so my goal in my practice is to help um, to help my clients, whether the family, the couple or the individual, to find peace. And I'm definitely more focused on the inner peace. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you practice weaving peace and inner peace into your into the relationships that you're in and how you support people with that? When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. The, um, the piece that always, you know, I, I revert back to whenever I am in a challenging situation is the concept uh, by Stephen Covey, the late Stephen Covey, the mm-hmm. author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So he has this beautiful concept in his book uh, where he talks about the um, circle of influence and the circle of concern. 
he talks about differentiating between uh, things in your life that you have direct control over and those fall in your circle of influence versus things that you personally don't have direct control over and those fall into the bigger circle or, or I mean the circle of concern. Mm -hmm. So his invitation to the readers is usually to really focus on your circle of influence and what mm -hmm. you can do in any given situation rather than focusing on the shortcomings of others or the difficulties of the world or you know how someone reacted to you or how someone dealt with you and and so I find this um, concept, applying this concept in my life has brought me so much, um, so much peace and mm -hmm. uh, has really liberated me from feeling obligated, if you will, to fix the problems of other people, because that's where I come from. I come from a place of service, right? right. So even, even if you're service oriented, you can also become overwhelmed by feeling responsible for the problems of other people and, and like you need to fix it. So right. But reading this just liberated me. And then, so now I focus on, okay, so how am I going to be a supporter? How am I going to be a helper? Mm -hmm. But the rest of the work has to fall on the other person because that's in their circle of influence. So this has brought me so much peace. And I actually use this in my uh, therapy um, sessions. I share it with my clients mm -hmm. all the time. Mm. Um, because, uh, because many, uh, many clients come to me in this victimhood mode, right? Yep, yep, They're yep. like, Oh my God, he's doing this and she's doing this and I'm not happy because this and, and then, you know, of course I have to seek to understand mm -hmm. like Kavi says before being understood. So I need to sit. I usually sit because there is something magical and transformational about being heard. Yeah. So I sit, I listen a lot. And then when there is a, a good moment, then I introduce the concept gently. And usually it doesn't click immediately for clients. It takes right. them a while. Then some clients pick it up faster than others. Some clients, I've had clients who have come to me for years and still this concept does not, does, yeah. did not sit You have yet. to be open to it, right? I mean, oh. if all of a sudden somebody's telling you, well, actually what you do and how you respond and what's going on with you is going to have a greater impact on the outcome than spending time deciding what to do to this little person that's, you know, that's a big invitation. And and it's funny, it right? In the seven week class that Noha and I both teach, mm -hmm. it's about week. I mean, I don't know what you're, I'm sure that you probably have the same experience where about mm -hmm. week three, people are walking in saying, oh, this is mm -hmm. about me. This isn't even yes. about my kids. And I've had only on one, only one time, but I did once have a, a mom who stopped coming because it was too much. Yeah. It was too much to consider. But most of the time they keep coming because it's really powerful. And I laugh and say, right, I can't put that on the flyers or no one will come. <laughs> yes, you're right. 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I love that. And Noha, I'm so grateful um, for you and uh, your generosity around time and being in conversation with me. What would you recommend my listeners do to broaden their understanding and support for Muslim families in their community? Where do they start? Smile, hmm. really honestly. 
I, you have no idea. Smiles opens, open, open the heart, and they bridge the gap of worry and concern. Um, I cannot tell you how many times this is how any connection I had with anyone started with just like that smile, which means like, you know, I'm approachable. Mm-hmm. I am, I am, you know, um, I see you, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, if anything, just like looking someone in the eye mm-hmm. and just smiling without doing anything goes a long, long, long way. Next step would be, I think maybe to seek to understand before assuming, um, before assuming that, you know, you know what's mm-hmm. going on with the other person and, um, just connect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's great advice for all of us, no matter the person who's walking yeah. towards us. Right. Yeah. I mean, I see it, you know, I, I walk every morning and, uh, and I have a trail next to my house. So I walk every, every single morning. And I see all types. I see the the, the breadth of humanity on the trail, right? Mm-hmm. So I see, I see the people who are cheerful, wonderful, and they look you in the eye and they smile and they say, how are you? And then I see people who see me, but they intentionally ignore me. Mm. And, inten- and, 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 you know, intentionally ignore me in the sense of like, you know, I see who you are and I really, you know, don't like who you are. So I am not going to engage with you. Um, so yeah, human condition again. Right. And then, and then the people in the middle who might be like, I see you and I'm uncomfortable because I don't know what the best thing to do in this situation is people. The best thing is always smile, look them in the eye, say hello. That's always going to be the best thing. And it goes both ways, Casey, right? So it's, um, uh, so I mean, you know, even, you know, I, I mean, for, for any minority, so this is not only for Muslim, any minority, they, they also have work to do. Mm-hmm. They really need to be out there connecting with the majority uh, culture. They can't just be sitting in their cocoons and expecting, you know, the majority culture to fix their problems for them. So, uh, you know, I, I tell people I, sometimes when I go to the department stores, you know, the associates, sales associates, you have the people who are by nature very, um, you know, extroverts. They, they smile at you and talk to you. But then you have people like you just described in the middle. They don't know how to deal with me in terms of like they look at me with my hijab and my long skirts and my long dresses and they go like, I don't even know if she speaks English. Right. Which, <laughs> so, so then it's up to me to really take that step and really kind of like help them know that I'm just an average Janet that they can connect with, you know? So maybe I need to approach and say, hi, and how are you? And I need this and I need that. So. Well, and that gives them a whole new experience. Whereas the next woman, Muslim woman, maybe in a hijab that comes in, they're going to, it might not be that difficult difficult for them because they will have had an experience with you that showed them. Yes. Gotta be. So 100%. Nice. What does joyful courage mean to you, Noha? It means to me having joy while you are actually facing life mm-hmm. and its difficulties. Because life is not smooth sailing. No. No. Perfect. Thank you. Where can listeners find you and follow your work? Um, so, okay. A couple of things. Uh, I have a Facebook page under my name, Noha Al-Shugayri. Okay. Um, I have a website, 
sakinacounseling.com. And I also have a YouTube channel, also Sakina Counseling on YouTube. And so I post some of the videos when, you know, when I make, you know, when I record something that I think is useful. I watched some of them last night, actually. Oh, oh. <laughs> to prepare for my interview. Okay, good. Right. And you also have, I, I also saw the uh, positive parenting in the Muslim home.com. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Yes, that's the website, uh, hopefully, to spread the message of implementing yeah. positive discipline in the Muslim community. And I see that um, on that site that there's a bunch of different trainers from all over the world and educators from all over the world that people can get in touch with to bring this work to their communities. Yes, and yeah. we're looking to even have more, inshallah. Great. Yes. Great. Noha, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. I so, so appreciate it. Thank you, Casey, for this amazing opportunity. I love it. Such a beautiful gift to have my friend Noha on the podcast today. I am so, so grateful that she took time to come on and talk with us. Um, something that really struck me is um, when we talk about positive discipline in different cultures, it's really easy for people to find the parallels, right? Just like Noha shared the story of the parent who mentioned like this is teaching us how to be with our children and also be with our faith. Uh, I spent time a few years ago on the uh, Cheyenne Indian Reservation and taught positive discipline for parent educators and for teachers. And so much of what we um, share and encourage people to embody and practice fell into alignment with the Native American tradition. And I know that there are trainers in China right now, as I speak, teaching about positive discipline. And there's people in the Middle East teaching about positive discipline and all over Europe. And, you know, it's this universal practice of being in relationship with people, of being in relationship with people. And there's this foundational place that cuts through faith, tradition, culture, race. It's about being with people. And I loved when I asked Noha about what can we do? What would be a baby step to kind of bridging the gap, right, between perhaps you and members of the community that that you don't know, you know, how to be in relationship with. And I love that her response was so simple. Smile at people, make eye contact, say hello. Can you imagine what would happen in the world if that was if that was just the way we were? And I know some of us that is our that is our come from, that is what we do. Um, but not everybody, especially not when you're unsure about the person that's walking towards me. So I, I just really appreciated that invitation to smile, right? Smile. And you never know what's happening in the life of the person across from you. So, you know, always looking for, as Noha said, seek to understand, right? And I am just so grateful for this, this space where I get to seek to understand. I get to ask questions um, and and find out more about, you know, the faiths and traditions and cultures of, of that I don't know about. I mean, I'm a middle class white girl, don't have a lot of religion, definitely spiritual, but it's 
<laughs> it's my own kind of piecing together of things that make sense to me and give me strength, inner strength and spiritual strength. Um, so yeah, I'm just fascinated to learn more about other traditions. And I hope that you're fascinated too. And I hope that you are taking away some good information from this show. Would love to hear about it in the Live and Love with Joyful Courage community. Pop on in there, share your takeaways. Um, Also, call to action. Be sure to sign up to subscribe to the podcast. Very soon, my show notes are only going to be available for people that are subscribed to the show. So you'll still be able to listen to the podcast through the website and the links that I post through the website. But if you want to access the show notes, you're going to need to be subscribed. So feel free to reach out for support on how to do that. Also, you in the show notes today, you will see um, I'm going to post a link to a video that walks you through um walks you through subscribing with your iPhone. If you have an iPhone, if you have an Android, I don't have an Android, but I I will make some sort of video or find a video that will support you in subscribing with your Android. But let's just make this whole podcasting thing easier, okay? Because I'm not the only person that's out here podcasting. There are some incredible voices in the podcasting world that you need to listen to, right? We all need to listen to. It's such a great way to consume information. And once you subscribe to my show, you'll see how easy it is to subscribe to other shows. All right. Okay, my friends, huge love to each and every one of you. Have a beautiful day. Take some time for yourself, even if it's just 10 quiet, deep breaths. And um, yeah, and I'll see you next week. Real truth alert, pregnancy, birth, and having a baby isn't all sunshine and rainbows. I wish it were, but the reality is that many people struggle and suffer through this time without the right help or even knowing what they're dealing with. I'm perinatal psychologist, Dr. Katayun Kayani, also known as Dr. Kat. My podcast, Mom and Mind, aims to shine a light on the difficult reality that so many hopeful and new parents experience and raise the volume on how we can better support mental health, which is a big part of our overall health. Episodes include personal stories from people who have healed through things like pregnancy and postpartum anxiety, depression, PTSD, and so much more. I also talk with specialists and experts who explain and educate on these conditions. All of this to support parents to know that they are not alone, that healing is possible, and there are resources that can help you today. Listen into Mom and Mind and walk with me through the world of perinatal mental health.